This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today we're talking with Loreen Edwards Forkner, avid home gardener, award-winning designer, author, and editor of Pacific Horticulture Magazine. Welcome, Loreen. Hi, thank you. So today we definitely want to talk about all aspects of your work, um, but I want to start with what brought you to gardening in the first place. Some of your earliest formative experiences or um, epiphanies that made you realize what an important part of your life gardening was going to be. I, you know, I think this could almost be said of everybody that as little kids, we were just outdoors. You know, we got put out the front door and said, you know, see you at, you know, first thing after breakfast and see you at dinner. And, and I spent, you know, whether it was walking home from school, I would always take the, the side path or the distraction through, you know, the weed lot or through the, you know, woods, which growing up in Seattle meant about, you know, at most half a square block of trees and ferns. But I was always fascinated. I wanted to, you know, burrow under the blackberry bushes and set up a fort. I, you know, so that outdoor play, it was initial. And, and I think that's common to almost all kids. I mean, sadly, maybe not today, but, um, and then, so I always had a vegetable garden. Um, I was going to grow all our own food. And if it didn't work, then we would just go out to eat. But, um, you know, I, I always had that inclination to to plant something, to grow something, and it started with food. Um, later, after I'd had uh, my second child, my son, I always have um, both honored and accused him of driving me to horticulture because he was such an active child. He was so crazy as an infant and a to- basically as a toddler that, you know, Putting us outdoors was the only place I could be assured that he wouldn't fall off of something. And so uh, every month of the year, he and I were outside mucking around. And uh, he was perfectly happy to just roll in the dirt. I wanted to be more productive. So I, again, kind of got back to more seriously spending hours and hours in the garden. Um, and the point at which he drove me so crazy that I had to have adult attention, I went up to my neighborhood nursery and begged them to give me any job they had available, any job at all. And uh, they gave me a job watering plants, and I felt like I had come home. All of a sudden, I was with my people. We were talking about things that we shared interest in. Um, we, you know cared about what the weather was doing. It was a year of a tremendous drought in Seattle. I was actually hired to water plants at the end of February. And so those sort of like larger climate concerns were, um, we could see how it was affecting our gardens and, and certainly at a nursery, our livelihood. And somehow from that very circuitous track, I ended up... Um, starting my own nursery with a girlfriend that um, I ran for 13 years. And so that became uh, very much, it, be- it became my everything. It was my, um, you know, 
the weather, the the financial markets, the job market, the the growers, and what they were producing and marketing. It was it was it was all consuming. But um, but it's it's funny, you know. My son is now twenty five, and I look back at him, and it to me it is such a straight line how I ended up where I am today, and um, to most other people it looks pretty random. <laughs> The crooked road is always straight when you're looking back at it. Yeah, exactly. Where I first met you when you owned Fremont Gardens in Seattle, um, mm-hmm. and the description that you just made about uh, both childhood and community and family, I can see myself being put under the potting table with my mother when she worked at a nursery, maybe for the exact same reason, and she just <laughs> never told me that's why she got the job at the nursery. Um, but the scent of that potting table and the, the greenhouses when I was tiny, uh, and then actually corralling my own second daughter in our raised vegetable garden with a fence that went all around it um, for to you know, ostensibly to keep the rabbits out, but it was also to keep the child in. Um, so those those are, I think, really great images of how gardening is interwoven through all parts of life. And then the community that you built at Fremont Gardens in Seattle and uh, and then took out from there. One of the nice quotes that I read uh, about you or, or from you, you say, she lives in gardens in Seattle where she pursues a good and delicious life. The really good part is getting to blend our passions into a delicious whole. And I really believe that. I mean, I um, am firmly rooted in um, environmental horticulture. You know, that is the whole system, natural systems and what's at work. Um, But the gateway drug to that very geeky science is food and the table. And, you know, it's very exciting to see people starting to care about larger environmental issues and food security issues by means of, you know, food and table. Everybody eats. Everybody should care about uh, what they put in their mouth and 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 who's growing it and and all of that. Um, so it, you know, in many respects, I suppose what first drew me to the garden is what keeps drawing me back to the garden, um, and that that never gets old. It never. It, it's always delicious. It's it's you know right now. Winter is all about citrus, and I can't get enough. And, you know, granted, it's not coming out of my Seattle garden, but, you know, somewhere two states away, there are people who are working really hard to, you know, capture all that fabulous citrus that, um, that I'm dragging home. And in a couple of months from now, it'll be rhubarb. And, um, and you know, I'm also very interested in showing people how it's not an either-or. It's not like you're an edible gardener or you're an um, ornamental gardener. It's, it's like these are beautiful plants. And the connection that we make with the plants and their cycles is so compelling in that it never ends and it's never static. Uh, another quote that I love of yours is, loss is a natural part of all living things and the garden is a gentle teacher. And I think that is at the end of your introduction to 
um, Hortus Miscellaneous, which is one of your five books. And um, I think it was your second, was it your second book or your first book? It was my first book. And it was done in collaboration with another woman. And, um, and, and loss was so much a part of that book because my friend Linda Plato, who um, initially had that contract with Sasquatch, and Linda died. She had breast cancer, and she died. And before she died, she asked me if I wanted to finish that book. Um, and I, of course, assured her that, yes, I'd help her with it. We'd do it together. We'd be Thelma and Louise, but, um, you know, the gardening world. But, but that, um, please don't die. And, and she did. She died, and I got the contract a couple of weeks later. And so, uh, you know, those are losses that are super difficult to process in our life. And, you know, they always say practice makes perfect. And so maybe every time I kill something in the garden, I'm, I'm stealing myself for the next time I have to cope with uh, loss in, you know, human lives. Um, or loss of expectations or dreams or rerouting. It, it's like... The garden teaches that constant adapting and resiliency. Mm-hmm. Yes, the the um, Tao of the compost. What? <laughs> yeah. Of your books, which one is your is your favorite? Wow, the classic. Which child do you like best? <laughs> um, I would say is the one. Ironically, that is. The closest to who I am is probably that very first accidental title that Linda and I inadvertently did together. Um, and, you know, the other ones, I, I love to write. I love to put my voice. I love to try and explain. I love to make connections. But, you know, the, the other ones, which also include a Garden Projects book, it includes a vegetable gardening in the Pacific Northwest, um, those were driven by agendas, uh, (laughs) now I'm rambling, which is probably the perfect analogy because given my druthers, I would probably just ramble and, you know, create all kinds of analogies and on and on and on. That's not necessarily a saleable book. Um, so, but I was allowed to do that. My editor on Hortus said, you know, like the track of a drunken bumblebee, these episodes kind of connect to each other and, and relate, all with their roots in the garden, um, which is lovely, but it's, it's totally random, and not many people like to read like that. And you're certainly not going to give instructions for a garden project like that or directions for how to grow vegetables like that. So... Of my favorite, the one that I connect the most to, and maybe it's just to have the strongest emotions about, uh, was probably Hortus Miscellaneous. Um, But the other ones, you know, I'm forever the MacGyver of the garden. I will always be trying to reinvent something because I don't want to get in the car and go buy something. Um, Typically, I've waited to the last minute, and I need need it right now. Um, So the project book kind of sprang from that. What can you make with stuff you already have in the basement, and how can you make it attractive and serviceable, not just decorative? And then the vegetable gardening, of course, gets back to my heart of the whole thing. It's, you know, I love to grow food, and, and here in the Pacific Northwest, we can do it 12 months of the year. 
just to give people an example, Hortus Miscellaneous has, um, I'll just open the book, which I happen to have in my hand, uh, at random. And let's see, this entry says, Holcomb Hall Garden Apparatus. Holcomb Hall, one of England's grand country houses, was built in Norfolk in the 18th century. And then it has an inventory of everything that would have been in the potting shed, basically. Yeah. 20 barrow chairs, one edging tool, four hammers, one suction pipe, just for example. Yeah. And on another... on another page, we have a description of a bottle tree and the history of it. Mm. And on another, we have a pages of different cultivars of tomatoes, types of tomatoes. So it is a great little book. It's great to have next to your bed and get a little like vegetable or any kind of gardening vitamin before you go to sleep. <laughs> well, and, and where does that lead you? What does that make you think about, you know, the the list of all these kind of arcane gardening tools from Hokum Hall, it's like, you know, I should really probably organize my tools. <laughs> I have no idea how many hammers I have down there. And what did I do with that, you know, barrow chair, whatever that is. And, and you know, it, it kind of is, uh, I don't know, it can almost be like gardening prompts. Yeah. Um, that, that either prompt you to make action or prompt you to slow down. Or prompt you to think a little differently, which you and I spoke about a little bit earlier. And the difference between some books, um, and you and I have had this conversation before, some books or some garden advisors sort of make you feel like you're not doing enough or you're not doing it right or you should buy something else. or And it becomes more of an acquisitive rather than inquisitive endeavor. And at its best, I think it's inquisitive. And this allows for... Um, Inquiry and right. and thought, which is which is a wonderful encouragement. Um, and I love the experimental aspect of it. Mm-hmm. It's like really the only thing that's going to truly uh, die or be damaged is a plant. And yes, we've probably paid dearly for it, but you know you can learn. Those are the lessons I learn and retain the best. It's like well. Meyer lemons don't like growing in Pacific Northwest, or um, that was not, I didn't get enough water to that. And it's like, okay, so next time I will do it a different way. It's, it's like, what other field can we pursue where mistakes or missteps are actually the way forward? I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're speaking with Loreen Edwards-Forkner of Pacific Horticulture Magazine. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're speaking with Loreen Edwards-Forkner of Pacific Horticulture Magazine. Pacific Horticulture is a long-time respected, established horticultural journal published uh, out of the Bay Area and covering the entire West Coast of the United States, going into the interior of the West a little bit. And you took over as the third editor-in-chief in 2012 from the longtime editor, Dick Turner, It's interesting to me that 
you took over at a time when we in the West, especially the California West, were experiencing one of the, are experiencing one of the worst droughts on record. And that was one of the catalysts for the beginning of the magazine and the big topic when the magazine first started uh, 40 years ago? Yep. This is the 40th year of publication. Yeah. And so this cycle and the cycles that we we learn from in individual seasons from the garden are also cycles we can learn from over a much longer time frame from other gardeners. Talk a little bit about Pacific horticulture and um, its wonderful tagline, the power of gardens. Um, Well, the thing that is, uh, I'm sure there are other organizations, they tend to be pretty small or, I mean, publishing organizations um, you know, you think of uh, a local newspaper that has a garden column. You know, that gets very, very local. Pacific horticulture is that on a regional scale and talking about the very, very unique situation and growing conditions and climate and, and impacting factors <laughs> that Pacific Ocean um, that affect West Coast gardens. And that is very, very different than what... Uh, kind of mainstream garden media is is talking about. Um, it's a big, big, big country, and um, a great deal of it has similar growing conditions, perhaps divided north and south, but certainly east to west. And then you have this little tiny ribbon on the west coast um, that they just, you know, we have one of the most ideal growing conditions, and yet the garden media is not necessarily aligned with what people need to follow to be successful. So 40 years ago, this group of hort societies, horticulture societies, got together and decided to publish their own and to speak to that very immediate uh, growing conditions unique to this region. And what I think is pretty unique is that it's all reader-contributed, um, you know, there are people, and I've been one of those in the past, who try and scrape out a living writing for the garden media, and that's not who writes for Pacific Horticulture. These are people who are actually doing it, um, you know, trying uh, to manage these incredibly dry conditions that are affecting everything from the top down. It's it's food. It's uh you know, building, it's, it's everything. And, of course, yes, it affects, you know, your, your garden in the backyard as well. And so how are people strategizing with that? They're not willing to give up their garden, but they certainly have to adapt and, um, again, with that, be resilient. And, and in many respects, it is that big loss. I mean, people love their lawns, and it, it might be gone. It, you know, it, it, that might be for another time. And um, and so the people who contribute to Pacific horticulture are are telling the stories of their gardens. They're making that more um, practical connection. They are also we're, we're so fortunate to have some truly learned people, um, experts, and you know plantsmen, people who have traveled the world and seen where these plants are growing in their native environment and say, well, that explains a lot about why it doesn't want to live in L.A. or, um, 
you know, here in the Pacific Northwest, we went through a huge season of, um, you know, kind of zonal denial, they call it. We had about a 15-year stretch where, you know, we just never had a difficult winter. We never had those sharp freezes or anything. And, you know, all of a sudden, all of our formiums in the gardens grew to be about the size of VW beetles. And and then our climate came back. Um, and And so... Writers in the magazine are making these connections. It's not just like, oh, yeah, then it died because it got cold. It's like, well, no, this is where it wants to be. This is where it's going to thrive. This is where it's um, natural, and this is why. And so that really, I think, helps inform your next decision. It's like back to, you know, making mistakes in the garden, but learning from those mistakes and understanding why. And I truly believe it connects you back to the, the world as, you know, kind of the world garden and, and uh, the cycles that we all participate in and how we're most successful when we don't fight those. Um, but, but, yes, I'd, the working with these various contributors, we don't really have – regular contributors. I mean, over the course of those 40 years, there have probably been, I think our last number was around 700 people who had contributed. Um, working nurserymen, I love those articles. Homeowners with gardens that they throw their heart and soul into. Public gardens trying to fund and stay afloat. Um, I think it's a, it's a different approach than most jarn garden publications uh, look at the garden. And I think that your phrasing of um, putting it into a setting in the sort of global garden, Mm -hmm. um, that contextualizing of what our individual gardens are doing or what someone else's individual garden, being it a home garden or a public garden, um, is one of the the aspects that I really value about Pacific horticulture and its voice in the the garden communication world. The um, for full disclosure, I, I do sit on the board of Pacific horticulture and enjoy it and learn from it every time. I attend a meeting and meet with others and read the magazine. But that contextualizing adds to that sense of community and information exchange. Uh, which which grows us as people and and as gardeners as well, um, and helps us maybe to not resist things that are sometimes hard to take on. There's a lot of discussion that in a world of hunger, climate change, desertification of our you know agricultural fields, all of this, you know why would what used to be called ornamental horticulture, I prefer to think about it as an environmental horticulture, why is it important? Why, um, you know, why should we still care about, um, you know, the latest, most beautiful introduction from a, a new grower? And that, it kind of gets back to the power of gardens, that, you know, gardens are typically beautiful environments. They they get us out there with our hands dirty on our knees and, and really working it. I mean, we say we're going to go work in the garden, and it's not the same work that someone who is painting a house is doing. We, we think of it as very, you know, positive, and it adds to our – I mean, that's good work. Um, 
But we get very intimately involved, and we become aware of those cycles and those seasons and those changes, and we look at the world differently. So why is horticulture important? Because I think it's going to eventually help all of us to understand our planet and how we have to nurture it and take care of it um, so that we survive. Um, and, yes, food is a part of it and, and, you know, commercial agriculture, you know, raising animals. Um, it, it all starts in a garden and understanding soil, understanding uh, climate, understanding uh, that fast is not always better. You know, you, all those fertilizers and everything may get you a faster result, but what are the costs? Um, and, and that really the, the, what we mean by the power of gardens as the tagline for the magazine is these beautiful gardens seduce us with their, you know, lush blossoms and these incredible fragrances. And, you know, you want to roll around in this, um, it, you know, beautiful environment. And then from that hook, they get us to start thinking about, how it got there, how can I keep it here, how can, um, you know, what had to happen for this to become this environment that it is. It's, it's you know, the old, uh, you'll win more flies with honey than vinegar. It's, it's, it's like a very sweet drug um, to get people caring about stewarding the environment and, and uh, taking care of this that we've been given. I really appreciate you being with us today, Loreen. Thank you. It was lovely to chat. And thank you for listening. As editor of Pacific Horticulture Magazine, Loreen reminds us that the magazine is published by a nonprofit organization whose work is to shine a light on those growers and plants people and nurserymen who are doing this good work and keeping our cycles going. Join us again next week on Cultivating Place when we speak with Paniotti Kelides, senior curator at the Denver Botanic Gardens. Everybody had that connection. Everybody had a, a, a mother, a grandfather, somebody who grew up on a farm. Nowadays, so much of humanity is, is surrounded by you know, cement and in cities. I think that it's become almost uh, uh, an imperative, I think, for a lot of us to try and reconnect to this bigger picture because a lot of people just lost touch with it. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Matt Schiltz. Podcasts and essays can be found weekly at MyNSPR.org. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.